Welcome to episode 15 of Refined by Fire podcast. Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle media production. Support once again comes from Elkhart Brass, and I'm excited to tell you guys about a a limited time opportunity that Elkhart is putting out there in conjunction with my guy, Adam Mayers. Adam is a fireman in Wyoming and a Brothers in Battle instructor, and Adam has been working on this concept for a little while called Engine Zero. And Engine Zero is really just uh, terminology or a label to slap on that firefighter who is out there on their own in the bay, on the apron, going to conferences, maybe not a ton of support uh, from their local department, maybe not a ton of support from their crew, but they are out there getting it, um, being responsible for their own excellence day in and day out, continuing to grind on skill acquisition and knowledge, fitness, all that kind of stuff. So Elkhart and Adam uh, are kind of working together on this thing. So just because you're out there working on your own doesn't mean you don't have support. To all the grinders and lone wolves, Elkhart wants to extend their assistance. Use the promo code ENGINEZERO at checkout in their Amazon storefront. So for the next week from February 24th, until March 3rd, if you use the promo code Engine Zero at their Amazon storefront, you'll save 20% off all their items. So here's the deal. Again, this isn't something that's that's out there for uh, the logistics supply chain manager for you know a medium to large size department. This is something that Elkhart's trying to do for that Engine Zero type of firefighter who would like to get. Uh, a smoothbore nozzle of his or her own who would like to get uh, a swivel reducer so that they can play with extending uh, that kind of stuff. So really excited for this opportunity. I think it's really cool that Elkhart has reached out to Adam to try to kind of get some synergy on this offer. So once again, for a week, starting tomorrow, February 24th, if you go to Elkhart's Amazon storefront and use the promo code Engine Zero, all one word, you can save 20% off on any Elkhart item. Okay, so let's get into episode 15. My guest for episode 15 is a little bit off the board. It's a little bit out of left field. This is a guy named Dr. Graham Peasley. Dr. Peasley is a professor of theoretical nuclear physics at University of Notre Dame. So kind of weird for the Refined by Fire podcast. But the stuff that Dr. Peasley is doing right now is looking into the chemicals that are put on turnout gear. You may have been aware of some of this. There's a a Facebook page that's gaining momentum. It's called Your Turnout Gear and PFOA. Um, but if you're anything like me, you're kind of skeptical and maybe this seems like maybe conspiracy theory, um, tinfoil hat kind of stuff. And we'll get into that specifically. But so we have Dr. Peasley on the show to talk about the research that he's doing, the legitimate scientific research on these uh, polyfluorinated or prefluorinated compounds that are put in our gear. And they're all over the place, uh, but specifically Um, in our gear 
and some of the potential health concerns, health hazards that are present with these chemicals. So uh, we also have a sub guest or a sub host, whichever way, I don't know really to, to put it, but Chris Martin from Elkhart Brass is with us on this show. He kind of made the connection between myself and Dr. Peasley and had this idea to have him on the show to really get the message out there to a lot of firefighters to like, this stuff is pretty real. This is not a, a goofy conspiracy theory um, that, that, that there are health concerns associated with some of these chemicals and that these chemicals are, are present in almost an alarming number uh, or alarming quantity within our turnout gear. So encourage everyone to get a lot from this. Number one, please listen closely. Dr. Peasley is a pretty funny guy, but he's really dry and kind of quick. So pay attention to that. He's actually a pretty funny dude. Uh, Dr. Peasley at the end specifically solicits questions. Any questions you have after, after listening to this show, please do send them in to the Facebook page at Refined by Fire Podcast. And um, let me know what questions you have. We'll get them to Dr. Peasley, and then he'll be able to kind of refine or alter his message for us to get us the information that people are most interested in. And specifically, he is presenting at FDIC in April, and so he's hoping to be able to um, really make his message tailored to firefighters, and any feedback and questions that we have would be really helpful to him. All right, so... I think that's it. Um, please follow up with questions. This is a, a different format, but I'm really excited about this conversation with Dr. Graham Peasley and Chris Stretch Martin from Elkhart Brass. Okay, well, I'm here with Chris Stretch Martin and with Dr. Graham Peasley uh, from Notre Dame. Uh, so first, I just I want to talk about why I'm talking with the municipal products manager from Elkhart and a professor of nuclear physics from Notre Dame uh, at the same time with a guy from, from Boise, Idaho. So, uh, Stretch, uh, you've been on the show before. People kind of know your background and your story a little bit. So how did you get involved with Dr. Peasley's work? Why are the three of us here kind of talking together today? Um, yeah, Stephen. So I I'm probably like a lot of the listeners right now where, you know, you're on Facebook or just trolling around and you see, you know, there's a couple of Facebook groups or somebody will randomly share an article about, you know, the cancer in your turnout gear, right? And, um, you know, uh, further research has to be done and do you know this stuff? And and I think a, a lot of the fire service, probably most of it, a lot like me at the time was kind of like, I don't know, this is just kind of like tinfoil hat stuff, you know, like, if it was this bad, why would they be letting us wear it, you know? And uh, I just kept seeing more and more of this. And the thing that really kind of caught my attention was um, uh, Notre Dame put out a press release about the work uh, Professor Peasley was doing. So that kind of like, you know, I'm like, all right, well, like, that's a little more legitimate if Notre Dame's putting out a press release on what he's doing. So um, I reached out to actually one of my old roommates, um, Matt Closer, who does a lot of STEM work here, and just kind of casually said, hey, I sent him the press release. I said, do you, do you happen to know this guy? <laughs> and he goes, actually, just he just reached out to me. So he was kind enough to put me in touch with uh, with Graham. And uh, he, on a drop of a dime, we met up and had a cup of coffee and, and chatted for a while about this. And he really went deep into it. And I left just like like an epiphany almost like, wow, like this is people need to hear this. Right. 
So um, since then, he did a local, um, what, what uh, Notre Dame calls like science cafe. So essentially, it's like a tactics on tap for like science nerds, which is, is exactly what it sounds like. So it was it was really interesting. So we brought like 12 local firemen to this event. And, uh, and listen to him speak. And then we have him slated for next month to do a local practice on top of this. So anyway, after just hearing this message a couple of times, um, that's why I reached out to you as, as just kind of like, you know, people need to hear this. Like his message has got to get out in a way. So I think this is a great venue to do that and, um, um, kind of connect, you know, me as a, as a firefighter with what he's doing and kind of like our background Notre Dame connection. And it is kind of weird how this all kind of swirled together. Um, but it's, it's definitely a story worth hearing. So really the topic here, which is a little unusual for this show, it's not usually very topical. Um, it's usually more of a broad discussion about a, an individual, but, uh, what we're really going to get into today is some of the, the chemicals that are used in our gear and how those chemicals may be problematic. So I've seen these chemicals uh, being called both PFAs and PFOAs. So uh, Dr. Peasley, can you just give us a little bit of background of like what these chemicals are and maybe why they're in firefighting gear? Sure. You want me to explain how I got into this too? Yeah. I mean, there's so much, there's so many questions here. Yeah. Give me, give me all of it. Sure. Uh, thank you, Steve, for the opportunity to speak. Uh, I hope your listeners will be entertained, at least. Uh, what I've done for the last, oh, N years, uh, a little embarrassing, large 30 years, I've been publishing basic research, and uh, I do nuclear science, which is great. About five years ago, I started doing applications of my research into environmental work. And so we looked at lakes, we looked at some flame retardants that many of your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, flame retardants are pretty nasty, and that's why a lot of you guys are wearing self-contained breathing apparatus, and you should be, because it's nasty and inhaled in the smoke. Uh, that's when I first met fire scientists, and some of them uh, co-authored a paper with on, on some work out in Berkeley on flame retardants. Um, that all went along for a couple of years, and then somebody said, wow, can you do these fluorinated compounds? And this is where I think the listeners will be most interested now, is we started studying perfluorinated and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, PFAS, and that's what we should call them, and everybody agrees on that now. They were originally called PFCs back in the day. Uh, yeah, only about five years ago did they change, six years ago. And so the P PFCs, PFASs are much the same thing. PFAS is more technically correct. And then there are 5,000 or maybe 4,700 of these things individually known. Uh, so PFOA is one of them. PFAS is another one. Then there's PFHXA, PFPA, and I can go on for 3,998 if I do them all. Uh, and you could get lots of these chemicals out there. They're all a single class of chemicals we call perfluoronyl, perfluoral alpha substance, PFAS. And that sounds awfully like PFAS, so telling them apart is difficult, uh, even for the chemists. Most chemists can't distinguish all of them. Uh, there are some fancy instruments that can distinguish them. Uh, I happen to have an instrument that's the opposite. Um, it's the difference between a microscope and a pair of uh, binoculars. I have the binoculars, and I can see all the chemicals together because I look for fluorine. And all these compounds are, and, and basically PFAS 101 is that these are surfactants, these are soaps that we make that are carbon chains with fluorine attached to them. And the carbon-fluorine bond is the strongest one in, that we know of, we've ever made. Uh, it's wonderful, it's uh, resistant to all sorts of things like heat, which when you're trying to put out a fire is good. It uh, donates electrons well, which means it's a flame suppressant, which is good for a firefighter. Uh, it's also the best water resistance and stain resistance we've ever made. 
So it makes water, gear waterproof. And specifically on turnout gear, we put this stuff on to keep it dry. Uh, you guys lug around a lot of weight. Getting wet gear is, makes it hard to lug around. Uh, it's a very good idea to have the gear treated to stay dry. The flip side is that it's also used in aqueous swim-forming foams, AFFF. And these are your Class B foams that put out uh, meet military spec to put out uh, hydrocarbon fires, uh, tanker fires, fuel fires, and they work surprisingly well because of their beautiful nature of, of water at air interface. They smother the flames quicker. And so that's why they're so widely used. They're very practical. They're used for uh, in all sorts of areas in your home, uh, on your carpets, on your clothing, uh, on your fast food wrappers, turns out, uh, microwave popcorn. Uh, you, you don't want to hear this, but uh, microwave popcorn, when you take it out of the microwave, uh, what's the first thing you see come out of it? Steam, gas. Steam, yeah. Would you, as a good chemist, put steam in a paper bag? No, I would not. Exactly. You are past the chemistry test. So you want to put <laughs> something in there to prevent the thing from disintegrating. They put PFAS on the liner of this. And then we put butter in there, which it somewhat dissolves in. We heat it to 200 degrees and we eat it, which is... If you're sure the chemical is safe, is okay. Uh, it turns out that we were told for many years it was perfectly safe. It's, it's like soap. You're good. Um, it turns out this is very persistent. It lasts for a thousand years out in the environment. It gets into people. It doesn't come out so quick. Uh, and there's some association now with, with disease. Um, and the story on that's kind of interesting how we got there. But I stumbled into this just like you guys, bass aquas. We got in there and got surrounded by it. The only thing that I have that's unique to me is that I found a way to discover it quickly. We've got a spectroscopic technique, which means I can measure it in about three minutes. And the traditional way of measuring it takes literally hours. So we can do something ten times faster, and then we are able to identify total fluorine. That doesn't identify it as PFAS, but there are very few fluorinated compounds out there that are natural. And so if you find it in a food wrapper or you find it in a turnout gear, it's likely to be PFAS. And you can do the longer test afterwards to confirm it, and we've done that. But that means we've got a tool for finding where it is and where it goes. And that got me into the field in a hurry because suddenly everybody wanted to use that tool to find out where these things go in the environment. And this was all up to two years ago. And then a spouse of a firefighter with cancer contacted me, a cancer survivor now, thankfully, uh, and she wrote me a heartfelt email saying, is there this PFAS in my husband's gear? And, you know, you don't get many letters like that personally addressed to you, and it pulls the heartstrings. And I said, and nobody will test my husband's gear. Will you test it? Sure. What? Yeah, I'm not going to say no to that. So I tested it, uh, and it was loaded with fluorine, as we now know. And so I had a friend send it off, and we got some lab results as to what was in it. And it was all the chemicals you don't want. Um, it's the long-chain PFAS at the time. Uh, and it was remarkable how much was there. There was a lot. Uh, and so I wrote back to her and I said, yeah, you've got PFAS in there, and there's quite a lot of it. And she was just so thankful that anybody ever tested it that we began conversations. And my interest was, I, I gained interest because what happens to this gear, I, I just finished a story on food packaging and where I had done, you know, uh, People are worried about popcorn bags. I'm not worried about it. You should eat popcorn. It's healthier than French fries. But um, when you take that bag and throw it away, 100% of it goes to the landfill. And that means that when that popcorn bag degrades, 100% of that chemical comes out probably in about 30 to 60 days. And it's going through the landfill leachate. It gets into the drinking water or into the source water that can become drinking water. 
and then you or your children are going to drink it. Uh, and that concerns me. And so suddenly I found a whole new area of textiles. We've done some textiles before, but I'd never seen anything quite like turnout here. That's very heavily treated with these chemicals. There's a lot of chemical in there. Uh, and this chemical is going to be do it function on the, on the gear. But then at the end of life, we typically send the gear off to somebody who doesn't have gear, or we razor it and put it in the landfill. And that's a concern because I'm thinking it's going to get, uh, it's going to take a long time. It's a synthetic fiber, but maybe a decade or two decades, that material is going to break down and release all those chlorine chemicals into our drinking water. So that was my first warning bell. And I don't think anybody argues with that, but nobody knew it was doing that. Uh, but you know, I'm just an environmentalist. Nobody cares about that. Um, well, then, well, this spouse of the firefighter got really bent out of shape that this stuff was there and nobody told her it was there. And so now it's there. What do we do about it? And so I offered to do, I was contacted by a series of firefighters and I offered to do a study. It was a little bit further up, which was let's test lots of gear. Uh, it's very expensive. I don't have the budget to buy gear. You guys are rich. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, but the, uh, the, the firefighter gear, if you can get me some samples of out of service gear or you can get me some samples of new gear, specifically the comparison would be great. Give me some uh, little swatches of gear and I'd be willing to look and see if there's fluorine in some of it, all of it, uh, multiple layers. There's a thermal layer, there's a moisture barrier, there's a outer layer, as you well know. Um, and so I wanted to see where it was. Is it in the hoodies? Is it in the uh, everywhere else? Uh, or is it just one item? And is it only one manufacturer of everybody? So we got, you know, dozens and dozens of samples collected. Just pro people donated. Uh, we got some uh, companies that got permission to take some out of service gear and send me swatches. Um, and then we got remarkably a couple of new sets of gear that people were willing to donate. And so we got some new gear that hadn't been used in 10 years and some new gear that was this year and some old gear. And we're looking at all of it and there's flooring in all of it. And so what it means is that to make this turnout gear functional, you really need to highly fluorinate it to make it the most waterproof uh, that you can get. And it's true of the pants. It's true of the jackets. It's true of anything with a moisture barrier and a, uh, outer layer. And then we even found a treatment on some of the uh, uh, thermal barriers and some of uh, the hoodies all were being treated with this chemical too. Um, okay, it's on the gear. That was our first question. And our second question was, can it come off? Uh, that would be the issue because I know at the end of life, we throw it in the landfill, it comes off. But what happens while you wear it? What happens if you expose it to sunlight? That does a number on my carpets. I wonder if this is the same thing. Uh, what happens if I expose it to heat? You guys don't go anywhere near heat, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is the concern that I had that maybe some of this stuff is coming off. And then the third question was, if it does come off, if there is a present, if it is there a lot, it doesn't come off. If it comes off a lot, uh, does it get into the firefighter directly? And that would be a concern. It goes in the environment, but could that environment include the firefighter? Uh, does it pass through skin? Uh, or does it get inhaled? Or does it get eaten? Uh, you generally don't eat your gear, but what happens if it falls off and it gets into the stuff you do eat? I mean, those are the types of, especially when you guys live in the station house and you have exposure to this gear. Um, it made me concerned for the first time that there might be an even quicker route other than the drinking water and everybody drinks it in 10 years. Um, and I think we do need to be very concerned with that. What, what happens at the end of life? Uh, because these chemicals, while they're okay as polymers in your gear, if they come off, they might be the pieces that we now associate with diseases, namely two types of cancer, <coughs> uh, kidney and prostate can uh, kidney and testicular cancer, 
but there are also several other uh, ulcerative colitis and uh, hypertension and thyroid disease, all related to this one and have been proven. Uh, so that I, I don't do the medical studies, but I know that these chemicals as a class have issues, and more and more studies are coming out now. Uh, so that's the background. Uh, I got into it. I'm uh, not a firefighter by training. Uh, I have several people, relatives, distant relatives of my family that were, which are kind of neat. Uh, and they're a fun crowd. They, they have beer when we go out. This is good. Uh, but it's one of those things that I think my, my chosen job this time is to do a study that's independent. Nobody's paying me to do this study. I'm going to do it because I want to find out where this chemical goes. I think there's a need for awareness in the community, i.e. the firefighters, as to what's on their gear. Um, as I told Chris when I first met him, that you guys go into burning buildings, that's a whole different set of risks than, than anything that I face day to day. But if there was a, if you know what the risks are, you decide how to address them and how to be safe and do it in the best possible manner. If you don't know this is a risk, then that's the fault of us not telling you. And so we need to see if there is a risk, if the gear never falls apart and if it never contains this material and if it never got into the body, then you're safe. And I'll be the first one to admit that and write a paper to that effect. Um, my fear is that what happens if it's there? Yes, it is. What happens if it comes off? Maybe. What happens if it gets into you? Uh-oh. Um, and so that's the, that's the, that's the concern. We're studying that now. We'll have results in a little while, but that's where we're at. And that's why I'm making the, uh, the appeal to people to think about it as to what it would mean if we wanted to treat our gear with a little bit more respect than we are now. Um, you should wear it absolutely in a fire. I should understate that already. If PPE is necessary, uh, don't go into fire without it. But should we be taking it home? Should we be keeping it in the trunk of our car? Uh, should we be washing it with other gear? Uh, does the stuff get mixed in the wash? Uh, should we wash it before we wear it? All those sorts of questions are very standard questions. Um, and, and policies can be made by firefighters that as to what's the safest way to treat this. And my particular personal favorite is what do we do when it's done, when it's out of service? Um, can we stop throwing landfills? Can we do a proper disposal? It's an incineration, I'm afraid. It's expensive. Somebody's got to pay for it. Uh, so that's a long-term policy and it, it affects our, our environment more than the occupational hazards. And so I'm worried, of, I'm worried in twofold, but that's where I'm coming from now. That's a lot. Okay. It is. You can edit that down to about two minutes, right? <laughs> well, I, I can. I don't know that I will. There's a <laughs> lot of good stuff in there. Uh, Graham, you, you mentioned it specifically, but where is the most of this uh, PFAs found in our gear? Where is most of it? Uh, in which of the three layers? The uh, outer layer has a type of treatment where it's primarily textile that has been treated with uh, what's called a side chain fluoropolymer. Um, and that's where it's got a, a, a fabric weave with these PFASs attached to all the, all the chemically attached at a fundamental molecular level to all the weave on that. There's an awful lot on the outer gear because it's so large. Um, there is as much, if not more, on the moisture barrier because that's made out of a material that you're familiar with called Teflon, and that's a pure, pure uh, uh, fluoropolymer, and so that has a very high percentage of fluorine, and it's absolutely waterproof. That's why you make it out of Teflon, and that's the inner layer. So the amounts of those two are almost comparable in terms of total fluorine. In terms of fluorine that's accessible, the Teflon shouldn't be accessible by itself. 
uh, it's much more likely to come from the side chain fluoropolymers, the stuff on the outside. But we are suspicious that, you know, when you make the pure stuff, do you make it absolutely pure? Does it stay pure? Does it degrade on exposure to heat? Yes. Does it degrade on exposure to sunlight? Maybe. All those sorts of things, we don't know how much comes out. And so uh, that's what we got to study and, and we get the numbers out to. And the idea is that I do this study and I publish it in scientific journals, but in, there'll be interpretations of that in general language that everybody can follow and say, look, this isn't an issue here, but it is there. At the moment, I can't tell either one. Both of them have a lot of fluorine. I mean, way more than your uh, standard pair of outdoor wear that you wear, the, you know, the REI jackets and the Columbia jackets. They're being, those companies are beginning to go away from them, but that DWR they apply to those jackets is not nearly as fluorinated as, as the turnout gear. The thermal barrier turns out to be, uh, except in a couple of cases where manufacturers design it to be uh, extra waterproof, uh, that thermal that thermal layer generally isn't, um, and so uh, but the hoodies and the uh, extra pieces seem to have been intentionally treated like the outer layer, uh, so there seems to be a lot of fluorine there. Uh, the the bad news is unfortunately it seems to be a lot of it, uh, and every gear um, that's not dangerous unless it comes off, and we don't know that comes off all the way. But I think all of us have had the experience of you know Scotch guard on carpets was a typical example of this chemical. They, 10 years ago, stopped making that, and they switched the formulation to be fluorine-free. Uh, but you know that your carpets in your house do very well. You can pour wine on them, and it comes right back off. But if you step on them or if you expose them to sunlight or to anybody under age 5, they wear the snot out of that fiber, and it comes off. And therefore, you're, you have post-treatments of Scotchgard used to put down on the high-wear areas. Uh, well, there might be high wear areas of your uniform, mm -hmm. especially if you go near a fire or do a hosing or you wash it or you uh, hang it in sunlight anywhere. I mean, those types of things might make it come off the fabric, and that's my concern. Um, we won't have numbers on that for a month or two, but that's what we're starting with. And if it comes off, where does it go? Uh, nowhere good, I can tell you, but maybe it's just going to the environment, we're okay. But if it gets into the firefighter, then that's cause of concern, too. Graham, you said that this stuff was loaded with fluorine, that it has a lot more than a, a rain shell from, from REI. How much more are we talking? Oh, I, I use a lot of exaggerations, but it's uh, uh, technically it's, um, it's the best way to put it. There is percent level of fluorine in, in Teflon. So, uh, and that moisture barrier is almost pure Teflon. So it there's nothing like that on the commercial market except for moisture barriers and running jackets and stuff like that. So that's very high amounts, but it's all safe. It's locked in a fluoropolymer and visible. Uh, the outerwear of the jacket is giving me a total fluorine signal almost as large. So there's got to be uh, almost a percent level of, of fluorine in that outer jacket. All locked in, what fraction of that comes out? Uh, and this is where the numbers comes in. We've got to do a little quantitation. I'm trying not to be specific on numbers, but when um, I look at things like drinking water standards, what's the amount people are worried about? The newest level from the EPA is um, uh, yeah, 70 parts per trillion. And a part per trillion is really low. Uh, so you go up a thousand, you get part per billion, you go up another thousand, go up a million, you get part per million. So it's a million, a millionth of a millionth times 70 is what's allowed in drinking water. And uh, a percent is uh, a lot more. It's 10,000 millions. So we're 
10,000 times higher than the millionth of the million um, is what we're talking about in the jacket. But most of it stays there. Even if 99% of it stays there, you could still have somewhere of the order of a million times above the drinking water limit. Um, and if that's washing off on you, uh, and you might get sweaty, or you might inhale, or you might, you should have uh, things, uh, other protections, of course, but you, you begin to realize that we're looking at trace amounts that have been associated in drinking water with cancers, and you guys are bathing in a lot more than that, but you're not drinking it uh, directly. So maybe it's okay, but that's the type of study that needs to be done. Um, and up till now, nobody's talked about it. Everybody's been concentrating on the HFLF. Because that class B foam is, we know that's getting the drinking water, and we're poisoning ourselves by using that. So the uh, military has stopped using it as practice. They only use it for the real fires. Uh, I think that's a, a smart decision. Um, we use class A foams to practice, and class B foams when the, when the plane catches fire. Uh, those types of things are useful. Uh, are there similar procedures we can do with the trip, uh, 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 class B foams in firefighters? Absolutely. But then what about the turnout gear and, in fact, other uniforms? There are, you know, station wear. turns out that this stuff is being applied to station wear, too. It's probably nowhere near the same level, uh, but it's high, um, and it's, it's not zero. So the question is, you know, should we worry about any of this? The uh, manufacturers of outdoor wear are worried about it. They're getting away from it. They have this consortium of companies like, uh, Levi Strauss and H&M and REI in Columbia have all formed a coalition saying they're going to phase it out by 2020. They did that five years ago, and they're all working towards getting ultimate durable DWR, uh, this, this water resistance. Um, and they're working on it. I know it's not an easy problem for textile manufacturers, uh, So, but they're trying to find alternatives. The turnout gear, of course, is for first responders. And so everybody feels very strongly about that. You want the best thing. Uh, but do you want the best thing that might be hazardous or do you want the best thing that you're pretty sure isn't? Um, and that's where the, the trick lies. Uh, and uh, I don't claim to have any answers to that yet. Uh, I think what we need to do is just educate ourselves, not be alarmist. I mean, we don't need to stop wearing PPE, but maybe there are policies in place to treat it a little bit more respectfully. Um, should we should we throw it away at the end? Probably not. Uh, I'd argue strongly against that. Uh, should we let our kids play in it? Oh, probably wouldn't. Um, and we talked about Chris. He makes these. Uh, uh, he's he he knows of these brass nozzles and things yeah. like that. There's lead in the brass nozzle. He should stop licking the brass nozzle. Mm -hmm. That's uh, and he should not drink so, it. I just stop sleeping with them now. I can't go to bed with them anymore. <laughs> they're just. We'll just yeah. keep, keep walking along from that. I don't want to go there. Yeah. But uh, he's got. I mean, you know, it's an occupational hazard to work with lead. There's only a few percent lead and brass, but you don't want to drink potable water out of a fire hose. Uh, generally, we don't. Um, that's good. And so the other um, the, the story you told, which I think is interesting about the foam, is um, is of the department that was basically training next to their fire station with Class B foam, only to find out that the basically source for the it was right next to the city water tower, right? So the, the source for the water supply for the city was on the lot where they're spraying all the foam, right? I'm going to go a little bit deeper on that. So essentially, the fire department contaminated the city drinking water by training with Class B foam. There are a couple of examples in the papers of this, and there are others that aren't in the papers yet. And it's, you know, it, it, 
everybody told you this stuff was safe. Um, and, and the best one I have is you go to YouTube and you look at the hangar suppression systems. I'll talk about this in a second, but the hangar suppression systems, you go to YouTube and you look for a foam hangar <laughs> Air Force yeah. test. And there are these seven minute videos of guys pulling the button and they test that, you know, it's a billion dollars of planes or several billion dollars of planes sitting in a hangar. You don't want people to smoke. Uh, you want a fire suppression system that if one plane catches fire, the other's well done. Uh, so they fill the hangar with foam in four minutes, which is pretty impressive to see because these are hangar sized mm -hmm. buildings and they have these big fire suppression systems in them and they test them every now and then. So they move all the planes out and they fill it with foam and then they wash it out. Uh, I don't know where it goes afterwards, but I can guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they have guys in there in their shorts and their shirts with no PPE whatsoever grabbing buckets of foam to be tested from, is it coming from the nozzle at the right, the mixture density of air to foam. Uh, and they were running through and, you know, it, it's, they make uh, foam angels. Uh, and they're, they're throwing it around and lining right. them and you think, ah, that's a toxic substance. You don't want to get below the layer, you'll pass out and that's happened. Uh, oops. Uh, drag your buddy out by his heels, um, but you want to stay, and they knew that, but they didn't wear it, you know, there's, it's clean, it's soap, right? Uh, well, it's soap with a perfluorinated compound in it that has shown cancers and all sorts of other things. And so people have been playing with this stuff for years and not realizing how, how dangerous it is in that sense. You don't eat it, yes, uh, but playing in it, you always get some, you know, they had it there. So the, Story Chris told is of several places that I know of now where they have tested with class B foams out in the backyard. And if it's on a nice glacial till soils, it goes through very quickly and you can get drinking water drawn as little as a, a quarter mile away, 30 feet down. It might have been contaminated. Can't prove it yet until somebody does more studies, but there's several where that's a known association with a fire test pit and, uh, uh, and especially military bases. Uh, there are several military bases where there are known fire test pits. They use the class B foam every day to practice and occasionally when a, when a plane crash. And so there are plumes emanating from that from many of the thousands of military bases around. And so they look for the fire training sites. If uh, there's a civilian department that tested these foams, they probably put it in the backyard too. And they were told it was safe. So after it was on the tarmac, you wash it off with a hose. And it goes into the groundwater, it goes into the ground, and into the groundwater, and it's soap, it should be good, right? Well, it's got a thousand year environmental half-life, or hundreds of years environmental half-life. It transports, and then the local community often ends up drinking it. And we know from a published study a couple of years ago that six million Americans are drinking this stuff already, and we fear that it's maybe five times higher, or a hundred, yeah, could be a hundred million people drinking this stuff already. Um, and it's at low levels, part per trillion. But that's the warning level because we already see disease correlations there. Um, and so that's, that's the concern. And that's why there's all these news stories about out of Michigan, particularly now, but North Carolina has mm -hmm. got it from Cape Fear. Minnesota had it years ahead of us. Um, and it doesn't mean that the other 47 states don't have it. They just haven't looked yet. And the more you look, you realize that it's everywhere. And it's not just fire departments. It's, it's coming from consumer products, coming from landfills. It's coming from our military use. Military is running pretty scared on this stuff now. They're, they're, backtracking off and trying to find out where they used it. Uh, it's not their fault either. They were told it was safe to play with. And it is. it smells better than the, the protein foams. But yeah. it's, you know, and, right. it, and so you're naively thinking, oh, it's soap. Um, and so now we have to backtrack through that and try and find out a, a way that people can use it when they need to and stop using it where we don't need it. Um, and so that's, that is the 
you know, it's not just a triple F though. What happens if it's coming out of your textiles too? And that's my worry. Um, and we don't have any, uh, data that we can share yet that's going to be, oh, here's a smoking gun. But we are, we're looking to see if there's a potential exposure out. That's what we're most worried about. I think it's interesting. Um, so after I met with, uh, Graham, he, he mentioned a documentary mm-hmm. called, uh, The Devil We Know. So, um, and a lot of what he talked about was in the documentary. So I went home, um, that night actually, and, uh, we, it was on like Amazon, you know, Prime or whatever, rented it for $4.99. It just came out last year. Like I was expecting some like 1960s, like black and white, you know, but no, it's, it's, it's all modern, relatively new, really good documentary. And I sat down with my wife and we watched it and it, and it ended and we just kind of looked at each other like, uh, <laughs> And, and I know Steven just recently watched it and he texted me going, uh, so what was interesting is, is this documentary essentially follows, uh, the making of Teflon and its effects on the town and the surrounding environment. And one of the, the interesting points was, okay, we need a baseline, right? So we have to find out, we have to find people without this in their system, right? And as, to them, that sounded something very easily. And in reality, everywhere they tested, every human being, whether it was in North America, Europe, Asia, could they could not find anybody without a trace amount of this in their system until they went back to what was it, Korean War or Vietnam yeah, it War? Yeah, it was blood veterans. samples from the from the Korean War. Just, yeah, yeah. they're blood samples of, of troops before this. So essentially, they were blood samples before Teflon was invented, right? So everybody listening right now, you, everybody has a trace amount in this in the system already, right? Yep. It's just a matter of if the work you're doing is, do, do we have more? Are we exposed to it more? But um, I would highly recommend a plug for that um, documentary. I know, uh, Stephen, if you want to chime in, but it, it really kind of put the pieces together um, for me based on uh, what Graham had told me and what I kind of read. Um, and it's kind of one of those things that I, I, every firefighter should probably watch. Yeah, I, I'll just add it's technically accurate. It, it deals with one particular case of industrial contamination, not firefighting foam, but just industrial contamination of a pond and the company's response to the town and the lawyer who took them on. And so it paints a lawyer in a positive light, which is rare. Uh, but it, it's technically accurate and really full of the heartstrings. So it's not something you want to take a date night to. It's, it's, it's a serious downer, but it's important because you understand what the, the monetary value of this is, what people's lives are worth. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of people besides firefighters exposed to this. And so, um, you know, what's the correct response? What should we do? And the answer for me is that I see this as a national problem. Never. Even without the firefighters contacting me in the beginning, I was working on this because I can see that this is a, a wave looming larger than almost any other contamination we've had. This is bigger than asbestos. This is bigger than PCBs. This is bigger than the flame retardants. And so even rolled into one, this is going to be bigger, simply because it's so pervasive, so widely used. We have no way to get rid of it yet. We're working on how to get it out of drinking water, but it's not clear we can get rid of it very easily. And so we're going to be drinking it for a while. And as Chris noted, that you know the polar bears have the highest level. They're up to 300 parts per billion because it's a, it's a global contaminant. It goes around the earth and it tends to gravitate towards the poles. Uh, the polar bears don't use AFFF very often, but they do eat seals that 
eat fish that swim through the, the oceans that navies bore the AFFF into. And so it bioaccumulates and it persists. And the top predator at mid-latitudes is humans. And so that means in North America we have about five parts per billion in our blood, just on average. Um, and that's all artificial, no natural source of this stuff. Uh, does that cause harm? We don't know, but we know that when it gets higher, it does. Uh, so at what level does it start to? And already, if we stopped using it today and everything, it would be there for many hundreds of years till it goes away. So we have to, we have to start taking proactive action. Um, I think we should use it where there's a need to use it. You know, if I'm on a burning plane, I would like to see the class be firm, please, because it's quicker. Yeah. Uh, but if I am just practicing with it or if I'm going to the mall, do I need to be in waterproof gear? And the answer is, I could, oh, if my carpets weren't treated and my children were free of this stuff, maybe I'd wash the carpets more often. If I want to fry a couple eggs, I'm probably going to use a cast iron skillet and not a Teflon coated pan, right? I, I switched to ceramic last year, which yeah. I, I thought my eggs were done, but it turns out I can still cook an egg. So, so, when, when I first engaged with Professor Peasley, it was like, okay, so the stuff's on our gear. Does it come off? We think so. Um, what happens when it, it gets heated? It, it, it definitely comes off. Okay. Well, what, that's when our pores are, you know, the biggest and we're sweating. So let's see, where is this going to go? Right. But then he told me the story, which was, I've told a few people now of, you know, basically don't, if you cook with Teflon, don't, and you have, say, an exotic bird, a, a cockatiel, macaw, whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. That you don't keep them in the kitchen, right? You want to go a little bit deeper on that? Yeah, this this is a story I told for years until I met somebody who told me about it. I I heard that uh, bird shop owners will tell you when you buy your cockatoo or whatever yeah, yeah. The famous bird is, you take it home, don't keep it in the kitchen. And the reason they say that is that the the use of Teflon when it's at normal temperature is fine. If it goes above 200, I believe 200 C, uh, 220 C, it can break down. And it actually scalds the Teflon brown. Um, not many people do that. You cook the eggs and you take it off and you can eat safely without getting much of the material in your egg. But if you start scalding it brown, the Teflon itself starts to break down and it breaks into uh, pretty noxious, actually very terribly noxious uh, gas particles. Um, and canaries or birds in general have large lungs compared to their body weight. And so a canary in a coal mine was used to sniff for coal gas. This thing, uh, birds apparently can sniff for the Teflon ingredients to come out of this thing. And it's a, it's a nerve agent. It kills the birds. And so you keep your bird away from the kitchen. And I told this story for days and uh, for years and people sort of laugh and say, wow, that's pretty scary. Uh, uh, but nobody knew it was true until one guy came up to me after a seminar and said, yeah, my mother killed the canaries. I say, say what? Yeah, we had two canaries. They died. And I said, you put them in the kitchen? They said, no, she was in the dining room. She brought the pan out and the birds, the birds fell off the perch and died. And I was like, Holy, how did that happen? <laughs> and, uh, and so it was, it's true, uh, this stuff can outgas. I don't think firefighters are exposed to that because you guys don't burn your uniforms very often. Yeah. Uh, if you were burning the uniforms and sniffing it, that would be bad. Uh, but, uh, I, so I don't think that's the primary source of exposure, especially since you contain, you wear the SCBA, yeah. But it's still, you know, this stuff is safe under 220, uh, centigrade. Uh, that's a lot Fahrenheit, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's known to break down above that. I don't think you should, uh, if you want to dispose of it permanently, you want to incinerate it at a thousand degrees of high temperature incinerator and that'll turn it back into elemental fluorine and then you're safe. Uh, but, uh, that's not what's being done with it now. So, 
There's, there's lots of stories associated with it. I would encourage everybody to educate themselves about it. The devilyouknow.com is where you can find this movie online. You can watch it. Um, pretty shocking. Uh, uh, pretty scary. Uh, lots of good documentaries out there. This one is just scary good. Um, and it has passing references to firefighters, but it's more about an exposed population. Uh, but what if firefighters are also exposed? And we know they are through HRF. And the question is, are they also exposed through the air? Um, and those are things we'll try to answer. Yeah, I guess I'll just add, you know, like me three uh, <laughs> in terms of being terrified by the movie. My wife didn't want to watch it with me because she knew it was going to be terrifying. She's, she's smarter than us. She, she stood behind the couch with a book in her hand for 30 to 40 minutes watching the movie, right? Because she didn't want to watch. She wanted to go to her room to read and not be not be scared by the reality maybe of what uh, of the persistence of these PFAS. Uh, but she couldn't tear herself away. And about every 10 minutes, I'd be like, uh, hey, babe, you going to bed? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go to bed. And then she'd stay still as a statue <laughs> and, and continue to watch the movie. Yeah. Okay. You talked a little bit about alternatives. Uh, you talked a little bit about what some of the other um, apparel manufacturers are doing to try to find DWR that suits their needs. And, and of course, it's extremely sensitive for these people, REI, Patagonia, Columbia, because the kind of folks wearing this gear tend to be more environmentally sensitive. Okay, so it's my understanding that even Teflon, they've changed from this this long branch uh, compound this C8 and they've gone to something else which is somewhat shorter right it's a six chain compound yep. um, and is is that what's being currently used in our gear uh, presumably yes I can't guarantee that until we measure it uh, but the American manufacturers of this compound have switched to C6 and that's pretty documented they did so under an agreement with the Environmental Protection Agency saying they're going to phase out C8 chemistry of course, Asia has not uh, voluntarily agreed to anything of that sort. And they, in fact, picked up the slack when the C8 demand went down from the, the U.S. They started making more of it in China and uh, Asia in general. Um, and so there's plenty of it still out there. To the extent that we buy imported textiles, then you're likely to still have it coming from Asia. But to the extent that they're manufactured in America, then they're likely to be made with C6 instead of C8. Uh, my concern, of course, is that it's another fluorochemical, and right. the difference between C8 and C6, I can put two on a slide in such a way that I tell my audience, this is one and this is the other. If I leave the labels off, you can hear sort of the groans through the audience, because how do I know which one is which? And, well, your body can tell that one is shorter and one is longer. Um, the reason they switched to that compound is that there's no toxicology data to show the same correlation between C8 and cancer. C6 and cancer may, C6 may have a correlation with cancer, but it hasn't been shown yet. The preliminary studies are coming out now because they switched to it and now everybody's testing it. And there are some concerning studies out there. Is it the same as the 16, I should mention that this, this documentary is about, the movie was about the 69,000 people that got tested. And it's remarkable. Nobody's ever done a study of 69,000 people. They do a study of a thousand people and they generalize the whole audience. These, Lawyers got 69,000 people to get their blood tested, and then they had enough correlation in that to make some really good disease, uh, disease correlations. I mean, very good statistics. And in this case, um, I don't know what it will take to get C6 on the same level, but I'm pretty sure we're going to get there. 
my own studies, we've done some studies with C6 versus C8. And while it is more environmentally friendly, it will go away in less than a thousand years. Um, it is also more mobile. So it gets out quicker and perhaps through membranes like skin or uh, air. More, uh, there's evidence that it goes volatile in North Carolina. But the C6 ether that they make is actually volatilized and is upwind of the plant, not just downriver. Uh, that's scary because um, now you can inhale it. Um, uh, I'm not sure that's better. Uh, but if they make it in the gear, it'll be made with that. I think it's a little unwise to say that because it's untested that it's safe. It is perfectly safe by government standards because the government doesn't regulate what's put on the market. The government regulates only after there's been an incident. Um, and there's not any chemical ban in this company. There's only three chemicals banned in this country. Uh, but the Europeans have gone ahead and started banning the chemicals. Uh, and so it's interesting that they're taking aim at, they've done C8 and they're aiming at C6 next and they're, they're lowering the limits in Europe. In the U.S., I don't think they'll ever ban it, but market forces will drive it away. If we can convince people that, eh, there's an alternative we should use um, that doesn't have this. And I don't think it's instant. I think somebody has to develop it, and, and it certainly got to be tested for fire safety and all that sort of stuff. Um, you don't want to switch to something that's worse uh, uh, for any reason. Um, but uh, that type of initiative will only happen when enough people ask for it. And they say, hey, look, I'm using this gear now because I have to. But I really like gear that didn't uh, the, have this stuff on it if I had a choice. And that's that's the type of question that I think we could all as a group, uh, manufacturers and consumers alike, and firefighters in particular, could sit and say, hey, look, where do we need it? When, when do we need it? And is there an alternative that would be also as safe? And for that, I'll point to other countries. I mean, Australia is a couple of years ahead. Uh, Europe is a couple of years ahead. Most of the other countries, are, you know, Asia is a couple of years behind in terms of discovering where this stuff is going, and America's stuck in the middle of it, um, there are some fire agencies in Europe that aren't using this gear anymore. They're using a fluorine-free one. Um, I don't know if it works to American standards, but that would be a good place to test. Um, and I would say, you know, let's take a look at what they've got. Um, there might be companies coming along here that could come up with something alternative. That would be great to see. I would support efforts to sort of see that. If we could see an alternative that got this chemical out of my landfill, uh, and presumably out of uh, out of uh, occupational exposure to you guys, that would be really quite quite helpful. And I, I so I say this not in an alarmist way. I'm not trying to get everybody to go down and protest. Your your note about uh, uh, H&M and Levi Strauss and all those companies like that, Columbia, they really do not like public attention to chemicals, uh, especially in their jackets. And that's why they responded because they're a market brand. You guys don't really care what the market brand is. You just care that it works and it's not, and you have it. Um, it, but if it was one brand or another, it, you, you see a TV ad, they're not going to change. Um, where these guys, when they saw protests and people were protesting this chemical being there, they responded and was, they weren't happy about it, but they responded very quickly for an industry. Um, and very absolutely. I mean, I know several of the people in those companies and they stopped using the chemical and they found an alternative and a uh, hilarious story about one manufacturer that used to produce these pants that were waterproof. And they sold them that way. And after this protest, they decided to produce pants that were stretchy. Yeah. Um, and they marketed it as more stretchy than any other pant on the market. And it is. And then the vice president did a deep knee bend in front of me and did legs as uh, stretches. And I was like, he's older than I am. Uh, I was <laughs> like, that's impressive. And he says, these are com most comfortable pants. And 
we asked how his how he did after the switch. Did they lose market share or anything? He says no, we're up seven percent hmm. uh, because they marketed it differently. And I think we do the same thing here. We don't try to drive companies out of business. What we try to do is work with them to come up with something that's that's we know this stuff works. Now I want stuff that works that's safe. And there's got to be a green chemistry alternative to this. Um, and the C6 switch is not the direction of a long-term safe switch. That will reduce your exposure to PFOA and PFOS. The O in that case is the octanate. That means C8. So PFOA and PFOS will be reduced by manufacturing away from that. But the C6 will be more abundant. Um, and I am not convinced C6 is any safer than C8. Uh, we just haven't studied it as much. And all the preliminary studies coming out scare me. I think they're going to be as I think it's going to be as toxic as C8. But we don't know that for sure yet. Um, you guys are in the middle of it. You're on the front lines, and so people are going to ask you what do you think. Um, but they haven't asked yet because you guys haven't been told. So my job is to tell you guys what I what I find. And then see if we can, you know, make an educated consumer base that says we really like to buy the gear that doesn't poison our guys, and that's what I'm hoping. So, Dr. Peasley, uh, what's next in your research? You said right now you have some stuff based on some new samples, some old samples, and you're trying to determine kind of uh, what the persistence is in that, right? Yep, we're we're hoping to see if it comes off, and we we can pretty surely demonstrate how rapidly it comes off. And that, I don't think that will surprise anybody. Yeah, it's there. Everybody knows that. It's coming off. Yeah, I think people gear, agree that gear wears out with time. One of the ways it wears out is to lose its water resistance. So I think it's coming off. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. The question is, when it comes off, is it slowly over a long period of time and doesn't really affect you? Or does it come off uh, in a way that could get into the firefighter? And that's a tricky question, but all we got to do is find that it does. And then we got to report that. If we don't find it coming off, if we don't find it getting into the firefighter, then we'll report that too and say, hey, look, we looked, we didn't see much of it getting into you. It's good. Uh, but um, at this point, nobody's even thought, we're talking about AFFF and nobody's talking about this stuff. And I think you, the number of volunteer and professional firefighters that deal with Cosby phones on a daily basis, if you're not in the military, it's pretty low. Um, but the number of firefighters that are exposed to turnout gear, pretty dang high. And so it's one of those things might be less exposure than playing on the phone, but it might happen to more people. And that's my, that's, you know, just numbers. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at that and see if we can, uh, find it. Now I would love the answer to be that there's no, no danger. That would be personally, I would sleep better. Uh, what, what happens if I find the opposite? And that's what I'm worried about. Um, and I'm not the only one. There are other people working on this, but we just happen to meet, Somebody got me interested, and my, my test is a lot quicker than other people's. So we will find out from the long method just to confirm and all that sort of stuff before we report. But we'll report it back to the firefighters as soon as we know. Okay. So you say you're not the only person uh, working on this. To your knowledge, are there any of kind of the, the typical market forces within firefighting like NIOSH or NFPA or any of those folks that are specifically looking into this? Yeah, I believe people are starting to. There was a definite resistance at first because it was only the spouse of a firefighter or somebody out here or some somebody posted something on a blog somewhere. Um, but that's where it began. Um, it's not where it's ending. Uh, I'm a reputable scientist now at a reputable institution, uh, whatever that means. Uh, but it means that it's independent. 
we have certainly professional companies that know how to do fire testing very well, and they are well-versed in this stuff. They've never been asked to study this, and so I'm pretty sure they're going to scramble and start studying this stuff too. I know NIOSH is studying it, um, but NIOSH just politically has had no funding for so many years. They have hundreds of thousands of dollars a year funding, which sounds like a lot, but they have, you know, that means they can do a cohort of 35 firefighters. Now, the cohort that they did in, in the movie was 69,000 people, and we're studying 35 firefighters. We're going to generalize to all firefighters. Um, it's a study that needs to be done. It's a very good study. NIOSH is doing an excellent study, not to criticize it at all. It's just, I wish they had a million dollar budget or a $10 million budget to do it, and they've got 100,000 here and 100,000 there. So it's going to piecemeal its way in, and that's your federal government work. It's slow. Um, and it, but it's, the scientists on it are very good. I've spoken with them, and I know what they're doing, and they're doing a top-notch job. Uh, it's just we're going to have a study, and people say, oh, look at that. That's interesting. We, I know that people in Europe are looking at this. Uh, I've spoken to a fellow there who has looked at flame retardants for years, and he, now he's switching to this saying, ooh, I bet you it goes through skin. Well, that's scary. So he's looking at that. Um, I know another researcher is looking at thermal absorption. Uh, where I know the Australians aren't looking at it yet, but they're starting to, uh, simply because I spoke to one of them about my stuff, and they said, wait a second, some uniforms off to be tested. Uh, and so it's just beginning. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not anybody's fault. It's just nobody thought to ask before. And now we're thinking to ask, and we'll, we're going as fast as we can. I, I think my job is easier. All i got to do is show it's there. And then the, you know, getting it into the firefighter is much harder to prove, but we can make some reasonable assumptions and we can say, look, can we reduce our exposure to it? Uh, maybe we don't sleep in our gear. Good idea. We probably don't anyway. But uh, are there small preventative things you can do to reduce your exposure to it? Um, and that gets into the argument as to when you should wear your gear and when you shouldn't. Um, but clearly end of life is pretty unambiguous. We shouldn't use the, we shouldn't be turning it into reused gear that other people use. We shouldn't be having our kids play in it, that type of stuff. Um, uh, just even if there's a even if there's a chance that it comes off, I don't give it to my kids. Um, as much as they like to dress up like firemen, uh, they can they can wear something else. And it's one of those things that you wouldn't let them play with the gear on the truck. So you, you know, be safe on it. Uh, and I think there are some sort of practical suggestions. I could imagine as a result of all this work that some poor rookies in the firehouses are going to be put to damp hopping the floors more often. Um, <laughs> uh, but that could be a good precaution. Uh, it could be that we wash our gear before we wear it. Um, that is bad for the environment, but good for you. Uh, that's a good trade-off right there. If I, thought, that, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting comment, because typically, like, you know, the the Christmas morning, it feels like, right, when you get issued, you sort of turn out here and you take out of the wrapper, right? Because this only happens every, you know, I don't know, yeah, five or ten years, right? Yeah. I always take mine and wash it two, two or three times just to kind of break it in right before you put it on. Yeah. But in, in reality, that might have a bit of a benefit is, is what Graham's suggesting is to, to wash out some of that, that, spare that, that, that spare flooring that's on the outer jack, right? So that's something else, right? Is, is kind of like, what can I do today? <laughs> right. So that's it. Some, some precautions of how we handle it. But if you get some new gear, wash it a couple times, right? Uh, and I don't know if that works yet, but we're testing that all right away. If it is, that suggestion came from Chris and others like him, not from me. I mean, these are what I need is firefighters themselves, and that's why I, I talk with them, because they have better ideas on how the gear is used. I had no idea you guys keep it in the trunk of your car, uh, but you work two stations, yeah, you have one set of turnout gear. It's going with you. 
And that means that the kids play things are in there and all this stuff. Oops. Okay. So what, you know, you detox the, the, the decontaminate the, the gear that comes off a of fire. Maybe we should decontaminate or think about along those lines of the gear as well. And it's just one more hurdle. You guys don't need that, but it's one of those things that, you know, we'd hate for this to be responsible for any, any of the diseases. And we don't know that it is, but, uh, common sense says you use precaution. And so that's, that's the, the type of message we'd like to deliver. So we've mentioned the documentary, The Devil We Know. If firefighters want to learn more about uh, the work you've done, Dr. Peasley, mm-hmm. or if they want to learn more about some of the work that's being done or some of the um, concerns that are out there, where can they go to learn a bit, little bit more about uh, this mm-hmm. issue? Well, there's that big Internet out there. I would, I would suggest that there's a lot of material on the Internet already. Uh, my work isn't all out there yet. Uh, I'm going to be presenting at FDIC this year. Uh, uh, and so a very kind invitation. Um, and so I'm uh, Friday morning, we'll have a, 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 a workshop or a class there and I've entitled it PFAS 101. Just what are these chemicals? Why are people talking about them? How do they get there? Where do they go? That type of material. Uh, we'll have publications come out as in the next few months and things like that that people will want to talk about. They'll be on websites. I'm going to point towards, it isn't there yet, but it will be eventually the Lost Coal Foundation in Boston. Uh, it's a memory of a fallen firefighter. They're uh, willing to donate web space, and they provide just information to firefighters uh, from an independent agency, of, uh, yeah, independent nonprofit, where they want to give information. And they were they noticed other firefighter issues. It's not just this one. But they've turned their attention now to, uh, is, there, is there problems with gear at all? And so uh, that was their intention originally, because they had some a different type of fault for the gear, and they they addressed that. And so then they they wondered about this, and I think there's a bunch of others. There's a, a cancer firefighter cancer awareness uh, firefighter cancer firefighter cancer support network. So on. Firefighter support yeah. network. Sorry, I got it wrong. But those guys are also very interested in if this is an issue or not. And so I think trust your own selves and and your own networks that exist. We will make our information. We have to scientifically publish because all I can do is report to the science. I can't do policy, but I can tell you what the science says. And if it relates to how your gear acts, then these networks will have copies of the paper and they'll be hounding the chiefs about what we do and the unions and all that sort of stuff. So there'll be people around with this knowledge. It's just getting more widespread. And if it turns out not to be very important, it will go away on its own. If it turns out to be an issue, then we're going to start thinking policies and what, what was long-term strategies. And that's way above my pay grade. That's going to be where companies and, and unions and fire chiefs and, and, uh, and triple A, triple F, and all those people, IE, triple F, what do you call it? Yeah, A, triple F. All these agencies are going to have to weigh in to do that sort of stuff. And I think that's the place it should be. It should come from the firefighter, and it should go through people who experience it. And you know what the risk-benefit is. Once you know the risk-benefit, you make the decision on what you do. Um, and it, you shouldn't let other people do it for you. You should make it as fire services yourself and say, hey, look, we have some say in what we get exposed to. And this is this is a policy I can live with. This is a policy that's really Peter's. I can't I can't live with that one. And you have to figure out what's practical. Um, so uh, I'm not invited to many parties anymore. It's sort of doom and gloom. I'm not trying to be that way. It's what we're trying to work out is just what's the information right there. You know, it's, I've steered people away from microwave popcorn for years, but. Uh, in general, popcorn's healthier for the French fries. You should lay off the French fries. <laughs> but it's one of those things that we, uh, we're going to 
get people to do the right choice by driving the market force towards, you know, I want the gear that works. I want the gear that works. That's, that's as safe as possible. Um, and that's, uh, it's a nice battle. It'll go on for my lifetime. Uh, and, but in principle, it's got a much bigger issue in terms of what the environment is behind it. And I think that, uh, you know, first responders right in the middle of it. So you guys are going to be the first canaries that we've got, and we're going to try and make it uh, so that we get the right answer out of it. Very cool. Okay, I'm about ready to wrap. I'm about out of questions. Is there anything that you guys want to address before we wrap? No, I've talked my rear end off. I, you're welcome to ask more detailed questions by email, and, and Chris knows how to get a hold of me. I am busy with doing all the work, and so once I have that out and published, then we can talk about it, and, and I'll, you may want to come back and ask specific questions then. I'd be very interested to hear what your listeners have as questions. Uh, so you have a, a blog or a website or something like that they can respond to, right? Yes. So yeah. yeah, they if can you go through the website um, or through the Facebook page. Typically, it's through the Facebook page on Facebook comments page or messages. Yeah, yeah if, you, if you get some questions that sound reasonable, I'd be very much happy to see that because I'm going to go stand in front of the guys at FDIC. I'd love to know what the questions are, and if I have some answers, I'll be able to provide them. The answer is I may not know the answer to a lot of these things, and I'll say that. But if I can, if I can provide, if I have answer, uh, questions now, I can work on them. That'd be fun. That's cool. Very good. The other thing that I wanted to make sure that I highlighted is that this this work has all been pro bono. Isn't that correct? That's correct. I'm not taking any dimes for this. We have had a recent contribution from the Las Cole Foundation that has paid for some of the laboratory tests I had to do. So I do my own test in the lab, but uh, before I publish anything, I have somebody else verify it. Um, and so we had some expensive tests to do, and where am I going to get that? And they volunteered several thousand dollars to do that, which was very nice of them. Excellent. And so uh, that's uh, I don't get a penny out of it, but some company did. And actually, tell a story about that. The company I went to, this is a good ending story. Uh, I have to pay for something that could potentially cost $50,000 of, of, of sample costs. And that's, you know, I, I can spend $1,000 that I'm noticing, but 50000 I have to sort of explain. Um, and so uh, I I said, I got this, and, you know, Lost Call Foundation could handle some of that, but they weren't going to come up with 50000 And so I called the company and said, this is what I'm planning to do with samples. And they asked what was the project, and it's a it's a small company, it's a very responsive company. And I said it's um, testing for a turnout gear for firefighters. And I went through reasons why, and I thought it was important to do. And uh, the real issue is, do I want the test results in 65 days, or do I want it in a week? And I want it in a week, because uh, I said it could be a public health issue if it's right. And uh, they chatted with me for a while, and then they provided a quote an hour later. I got an email quote. And instead of charging me somewhere up around that stage, they reduced their price by a little over 80%. Sure. Um, and the backstory was I knew the woman in charge, and she's pretty environmentally friendly, uh, but I didn't know the head of the analytical lab has a brother in the, or has family in the fire service. And uh, they just agreed as a small company, look, we're going to cut these guys a lot of slack and just do it. And it's, not that it's, it's not that it's free, but I still have to pay thousands of dollars, but I'm not paying tens of thousands. And that made or break this. I mean, it saves time. It saves me three months of time. And I'm like, that's going to be a big. Um, and so uh, we'll acknowledge the company when they come down. But they're an independent company. They're just going to pay them cash. They run samples. And they don't know which one is which. They're just going to hand the results back. 
But if they match my results, then I have independent confirmation of what I'm seeing and that sort of stuff. And that's how you do science. You publish it. You have peer review. You have people say, hey, do you remember this, this, and this? We go do it. Yep, now we remember it. And then you publish it. And anybody else is free to do the same test that I've done. And that's the beauty of science. Anybody can do it. Uh, I'm doing it now, and then other people can verify my results. And, and the question is, does it show something? If it doesn't, we'll be happy to publish that because I think you guys will sleep better knowing that. Oh, it's safe. Uh, if it's coming off and getting in your blood, yeah, then uh, you won't like me much, but it's better to hear it now than, than after, after mm-hmm. too long of exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for pouring so much energy and time into it. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today to share um, with thousands of other firefighters uh, some of the potential issues that are out there. Well, thank you, Steve. This is very good format. I, I don't have to travel from uh, sunny, uh, sunny, sunny Indiana. Yeah. Um, it's deceptively cold out. It's about 10 degrees yeah, outside. It's really cold. Uh, even Boise sounds attractive yeah. right now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's one of those things that uh, it's, it's good. feels good to do. You guys, are, uh, you guys are genuinely nice guys. I had a, a conversation with a firefighter from Chicago who says, oh, we're all just gorillas with axes. And yeah. to my experience, that's really not true. You guys have a lot, way too much time on the Internet, uh, but you're looking <laughs> up lots of material and pretty well self-educated a lot about a lot of this stuff. And that's why I'm just helping to push it along. Um, there's plenty of stuff out there that you can read from other people that I encourage you to do so. And then we're going to try and find the truth in, in all this. And that'll be fun. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. And let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do. 